Hey, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Vialucci Podcast. Honest, uncensored, and unedited discussions about life and everything in it. So, sit back, relax, and let's start the show. Oh, so, Signe, did we start from halfway through the conversation? What were you going to say, Hannah? Well, right, I, this is the Vialucci Podcast <laughs> with the CEOs of uh, The Big Issue, Stephen Foundation. Roberts. Oh, Foundation. Um, and Hannah was halfway through a sentence. What were you going to say? Well, I mean, I was just going to say that I bought one this morning coming out of Holborn Tube Station by a very young, I mean, lovely young gentleman. And, uh, yeah, I, was, I didn't know um, how much it was. And I asked him, and I thought it was what they... You know, they could choose a price for it, but mm-hmm. it is just notice saying it is two pound fifty. But I presume you can. I gave more, obviously, but I didn't know there was an actual price. There is an actual price. Oh. Vendors buy the magazine for one pound twenty-five with their own cash, and they sell it on at two pound fifty. So they double their money. So people pay more for that. It's like leaving a tip in a restaurant, but it's absolutely essential that people actually do buy the mag and don't just give money to somebody yeah. because it's a commercial proposition. Yeah. So to kick straight in, yep. why I want to speak to you is because I, I, I do think, I, I, I use myself a lot of the time as the fall guy for things of somebody that doesn't know a lot about certain things, but I've got a sort of emotional feeling about certain companies and things. So why I want to speak to you is really to get people to understand what it is, the big mm-hmm. issue, and what are the sort of factions around it. So... Th- Give me some idea of how it works and the, the everything with the vendors. All right, fine, Mark. Um, the Big Issue magazine is based on an idea that Gordon Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop, encountered in New York some 27 years ago where a homeless guy came up to him and tried to sell him something called Street News. So rather than... Was this in New York? In New York. Yeah. So rather than, uh, you know, buddy, can you spare a dime? The guy was sort of asking just for cash. Gordon came to understand that this person was seeking to enter into a commercial transaction. He gives some money, he get a product in return. And when... He came back to the UK. Um, he and his wife, Anita, knew John Bird, our founder, now Lord John Bird. Anita, the body shop, Anita. Correct, oh, absolutely. Right, okay. so, and they knew John, our founder, um, who um, at that time was a printer. Uh, but uh, Gordon and John went back a long way. They, in fact, I think meant, met in a pub in Edinburgh when John Bird was on the run from the police. <laughs> and uh, What for? Come on, what, what was it for? All sorts of things. Okay, jo- jo- John good. John grew up in a you know big um, working class traditional family, left home, not being able to read and write. Um, issues around uh, crime, drugs, alcohol, in and out of prison. That's where he learned to read and write, and was a general ne'er do well. But at that time, he was a printer, and somewhat um, bravely or naively, you might argue, uh, Gordon and Anita gave uh, John the initial cash to oh, set okay. up the Big Issue magazine, which has always operated on the same basis. And that is that it's written by professional journalists. The circulation forms the basis of the rate card and advertising is sold externally via Dennis Publishing, who, amongst other things, do Men's Health, The Week and Viz and what have you. And uh, that magazine is then uh, uh, sold on to people who are experiencing extreme forms of social and financial exclusion. In other words, if you've got no money and no mates, as chances are you're going to have more periods of time outside, who offer their first five free copies of the magazine are up and running as news agents without shop. So okay. it was set up to give people an alternative way of getting cash, uh, a way that wasn't committing crime, that wasn't begging, <coughs> and so on and so forth, and giving people uh, in that space the uh, one opportunity first and foremost that no other organisation does, yeah. and that is a chance to yeah, start your own business. They don't directly work for you. That's the thing I didn't know. So they're, mm-hmm. they're self-employed through you sort of thing. Uh, the big issue functions as uh, effectively a wholesale retailer. Right, okay. uh, the magazine oh, is right. sold exclusively to that group of uh, people who then go on and sell it themselves and to the rest of the world. That, what hoops do they have to jump through? Like, what do you do? Who do you go to? 
We meet vendors uh, through all sorts of uh, channels. Uh, number one, they're often referred by other vendors because our guys are very visible in the streets oh, right. and people yeah, can't yeah. go, how do you do that, mate? We work really closely with the police and other homeless organisations. So so as a, as, a, as a movement, as it were, because it's such a well-known brand, people will be referred to us. Yeah. And um, when people come to us and they knock on the door, um, they're not when you say knock on the door, literally, I'm being figurative. Oh, okay. When, there's, when not, they, there's not yeah. somewhere in London. They <laughs> Waking can go, him up hey. at night time. <laughs> Stephen, there's Steven. just <laughs> one big door. Um, no, no, no. So when people come to us, they don't come to us because they've got a problem with their landlord. There's a tenancy issue or what have you. Yeah. They come to us to get some cash. And so when you walk through that door, that's the reason why you've come in first and foremost. And um, you have a fairly straightforward needs assessment. We check in with where you are, make an action plan, and you get allotted a training pitch. So you have a temporary badge. And in London, for example, the training pitches are in Covent Garden and Victoria. Uh, and you're out on the street pretty quickly selling the magazine. Now, the way that that trick works for you to come back the next day is that it breaks the cycle and the immediacy of being on the street. So. Typically, if you were knocking on the door for the first time, your time horizon is about an hour ahead. You're thinking, what am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to do next? The idea that if you knock on that door again the next day with some money in your pocket that you've earned, then we've just added another 23 hours onto your time horizon. Because if you turn up and go, sorry, mate, I haven't got any money, yeah. you don't get a business. Yeah. Because everyone understands you need capital for a business, and so it requires you to save, despite whatever else you might do with it. And making somebody think about tomorrow is the first step forward because you have the responsibility of your own business. Yeah. What's more, the process of selling is the thing that begins to change you. Not only in terms of thinking about your money and what you're gonna do with that, investing in your stock, planning how much you wanna sell, but also actually convincing people to buy it. Because that's a really big deal because what it is is a face-to-face -face sales job, yeah? I've gotta convince you to put your money in my homeless hands. So I have to engage with you, excuse me sir, excuse me madam, big issue. And that process of, of selling requires certain social skills that I've kind of lost in that space previously. I was probably spending 90% of my time on my own inward looking and self-abusing to some extent or another. So the process of me suddenly trying to sell and engage with the world reconnects me with the marketplace. Yeah, I've said myself, <coughs> because again, I've, I've been homeless. I left home when I was a kid. I've got to be careful not to speak like I'm a bastion for homeless people, but I'm not. But I've spent a few months on the, on the streets. And one of the things we spoke about on the podcast before is like how much of a ghost you feel mm -hmm. like. And I said, that's the scary thing. Um, and who was I speaking about? Was it you in the podcast? Well, I think it was that like... When I said, if you don't speak to them... Yeah. No, no, you said if you're not even going to give them like money or food, at least speak to them. Yeah, that's because what, the what is happens is invisible. after a couple of days, it's a weird thing. You, you slip backwards and it becomes comfortable that you're out of it and people not acknowledging you like your psychology changes so you're not on the same sort of frequency as everybody else so it's like what you said Stephen if somebody's talking to you or you have to do stuff what it's doing in a very crude way is keeping you feel like a human being Absolutely. which people don't understand until that's not there that something you yeah. feel so normal isn't you can slip out of that very yeah. very well, you're easily you're coming back into society aren't you and that was a really I hadn't ever really thought about the way that you described that of of like having that pot of money because I, I suppose what you mean is like if you've got that money you could so easily go and spend that on I mean not to be cliche but yeah. drugs or drink or whatever yeah. but the point is that they've got to come back if they want more and they want to yeah. progress they've got to come back with that money so it gives them a bit of an aim a purpose absolutely and I hadn't thought about it like that before but also you've got to plan your your stock because if you've bought 50 magazines and you only sell 30 the £1.25 you've spent on the 20 comes out of your profit. So you've also got to start to really plan ahead about how hard oh, you want to work. Oh, do you work. mean as in like you would... So 
they would buy. Is this this is weekly? Yeah. This is another thing I didn't realize. Okay. I thought it was monthly. Some simple some simple stats. It comes out every week. It's published across the UK. The average circulation is just under eighty thousand copies a week, but there's a huge seasonality in that. So in the week before Christmas, the year before last, we haven't quite finished adding up this Christmas. Um, over two hundred ninety-three thousand copies were sold, but that wasn't what we sold to the public. That's what we sold to people experiencing extreme exclusion, yeah. who buy that product with their own cash and then go on to sell it or not. And in some instances, as y you did today, perhaps earn more than the cover price of the magazine itself. So it's it's a huge amount of money exchanging hands in that space. So but it gives the people who are doing it the responsibility for running yeah. it, and so that's where the accountability sets in because it's a personal accountability. You don't get your money back if you've got your calculations wrong. We're not going to give you a refund, so you have to take account of yourself. And you have to therefore start thinking forward. And that's where, where the cycles of immediacy and street homelessness get broken. Yeah. So I assume then that this comes out every week on what day? It comes out every Monday. Every Monday. Every so is week it, is it Sunday produce that, that magazine. Is that's it Sunday crazy. then that you have to, that you get most people coming to you to buy them so that gives them a week? They're not going to come to you on a when, well, unless they've well, run out. Well, I mean, it comes out every Monday, so there's a queue of people waiting on Monday. It's printed right. over the weekend in Bicester. It's run around the country in a, a whole bunch of lorries. And there's queues of people um, at sort of 6 a.m. outside our offices around the country. But to be clear... The size and circulation of the magazine, the frequency with which it comes out, creates this impression that we're this really big organisation. Yeah. But, but you're not, <coughs> I researched you, you're like 75 of you. There's 75 people it? in the business and um, 25 people within the charity, the bit that I'm chief exec of. So there's 100 of us uh, compared to an average vending population of around 2,000 people, of which in London there's 500. So it's not about us, it's all about the work yeah. that people are doing on the street. And everyone that I've met, um, has never met me as the first ever representative of the big issue. People have met vendors yeah. first, and that's what it's about, because it's not about me as a white middle-class male going, oh, isn't homelessness terrible? We really ought to do something about it. It's actually about what's being done already out there on the street. So we're very good at making sure that people understand, first and yeah. foremost, it's not about us as an yeah. organisation. It's impressive, the magazine. It's a fantastic read, and the people that work in it, the journalists, everyone is really committed to what they're doing. But they're committed to doing that in order to make a product that makes you want to cross that social line and put your money in my homeless hand to yeah. get it. So they w sorry, sorry, Hannah. So when you when you give that cash to the uh, big shoe vendor, that's going to them, and they're sort of mini businessmen. Totally. That's what it is. Absolutely. So you and you're actually it's like that's like pure personal development. If you think about the purest version of it, it's not that you've got this or you're an author and you're trying to do all these other things. You've got nothing, mm -hmm. and you go, I'm at the bottom of this heap here. I can either take one step down yep. or sod it, and I'm going to start from the bottom and work my way up. You've and that's it. what they're choosing to do, if you think well about well it. I read something that you said that was it was really good, that, in, that you say it's not a hand out, it's a hand up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like kind of reaching out and saying, and I think that's the thing that you need to instill in people, is wanting to better themselves and not just being like, oh, here you go. It's like, no, I want to be better. Yeah. I'm going to. I've got a purpose. I've yeah. got an aim to get up in the morning to do something and seeing that kind of light at the end of the tunnel because you have some self-worth. Yeah. Totally, absolutely. I mean, and, th and that, that is really um, the most important bit to get. And, but going back to your point about being invisible, you know, that process of being out there, it's a bit like you can almost hear your nails sort of going down the blackboard of life as you fall down. The idea that you're going to start your own business is quite a, a weird thing because when people see a big issue vendor, 
they see a homeless person with a magazine, arguably. You don't see a news agent. Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity around that. I think then people just go, yeah. well, I don't know what it is, so yeah. I'll, I'll stay away. You don't see a news agent without a shop. <laughs> now, you know, all of us have problems in our lives, and when we go to work, we try and leave those problems outside while we do our job. But people will go out to our vendors and go, you know, what, what brought you to this? And yeah. I bet none of us in this room have ever gone into a news agent and go, what made you become a news agent? Yeah. You know, you're actually going in with a purpose to buy something. One of the challenges our vendors face is that once you put on one of the red tabards and you're holding up the magazine, rather than being someone who's perhaps lost the most important things in their life and rather than crawl away, decided to start their own business, to the people that you're encountering, you're an ambassador for a representative of the useless, the feckless, the idle, the drug addicted and the wasted and generally worthless. So one of the problems you have there is that people will start to come up to you and actually say, get a job. And it's like, well, I'm already at work, mate. Yeah. You're late. Yeah. People don't see that. And, and one of our big missions in this space is to get people to see the value of work and what someone is doing and they, they will have problems and we will help them that's what we do in the big issue foundation we're there to deal with the issues that brought you to us in the first place but when you're actually doing that job it's a job and yeah. you might have some and other stuff going on isn't it? absolutely you might have stuff going on in your life we yeah in my head now from speaking to you that it's the very definition of personal development they they're down at the bottom and they've got that marks right up to the top and they go yeah i'm going to take the long road back because i could take the drugs i could take the the easy fix yep. and just get on that slide and just go down it's all fit easy for me but i'm not and i'm going to fight back that's like uh, people need to know that again it's like w with the ambiguity thing it's like when people don't know things they do tend to go well forget it i haven't got time to learn when you actually know that you know they're yeah. mini businessmen yeah and I they're there at the bottom trying to make a, a go of it it changes your mindset yeah. completely and what what's really important as well as a as a as an organization we don't have a particular program or a regime or the way you know the way that we want to work you know for example we're not a faith-based organization we really don't care what people believe in as long as they believe in themselves because the f underlying principle is you've got to put something in to take something out and you can't really disagree with that you could be kind of extreme norman tebbit right wing kind of get on your bike and sort your life out to through to kind of holistic self-actualization and hugging the universe yeah everyone agrees that if you want something in life you've got to put some effort in and the big issue is a kind of perfect gleaming example of if you put something in, you yeah. can take something out on your own terms. And, and it's, it's a ladder. going as well, because like you said, <coughs> let's say you've done it for a month and you look at your money and you're like, I've actually got money. I've got quite mm -hmm. a lot of money. I could easily go back. I could spend my money on drinks and drugs and fall back down. But the point about this that is so great is that if you do that, you're not back there again the next day. Well, it's that it, it may be true, yeah. but people go to work and spend their money on drinks and drugs all the time. You know, that, that's just a fact of life. Some people have certain jobs and that's what they do at the weekend. That will be uh, true for some of our vendors, but we're there to help people with that. Yeah. But if you spent all your money on drinks and drugs, you don't have a business. That's what I mean, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's the point, the decision that you have to make. So you may well be living with some really quite complicated problems, but those problems we will help you with. But if you run out of cash, we won't help you. So when you say help me, right, so I, I'm coming to you, mm -hmm. like I'm actually knocking on your door, ah. I'm homeless, I'm at the very bottom, how does it actually work? I come in and talk to you, what do you give me? Do you give me a tenner? Do you give me 20? What, you get five free work? copies of the magazine. Right. Um, but I, do I need to sign things? Do I need to say... We take down a little bit of personal information about you, but nothing that, you know, it's, how to put it? The job is self-selecting. You don't think, oh, I need 300 quid this weekend, I'm going to go and sell the big issue. It's really tough, and it's particularly tough in the first two weeks. So we are there to offer that opportunity. If you make it, if you make it through, then we can start to help you with all the other things that have been going on in your life. But first and foremost, it's an opportunity to get out there and earn. So, and that's why you've turned up. So you don't have two days of intense training and two days of needs assessments because you turned up to get some cash, and you kind of need that. And you pick wherever you want to go. Five we, copies. Okay, there, um, we have training pitches in certain bits of London, and we will 
excuse me, allocate you a training pitch, which will be near experienced vendors so they can kind of look out for you. We have people that work out on the streets to see how building you're doing. Building a community rather building than competitive. Absolutely, building a community in that sense. And um, But your pitch is your own. It's allocated to you on the basis of what we expect those sales could be in terms of your personal ambitions and how much you want to earn. We try and match that with the foot flow of the area. And you sign a code of conduct which says how you'll behave uh, to with a, with a magazine and to the public. You won't be caught... You know, walking around with one copy going, oh, it's my last copy, mate, and trying to just get um, you know money out of that. You need to be able to sell it. And it also says how we'll work with you, and as long as you don't break the rules. Um, Do you go around and check people? Yeah, and the public, trust me, are not backwards and coming forwards <laughs> in terms of mm. complaining about things they think may or may not be true. So, mm. And because we work very closely with street wardens and the police and so on and so forth, as best we can, given our limited size, mm. we have a pretty good awareness of what's going on. And in So they so don't I've need an address or anything? They don't need a. They don't need a, a home address. Nope. Or well, they're homeless, aren't they? So. Oh yeah, I think <laughs> that they're all homeless. Or is well, some. Like I mean, people, people with, people facing extreme exclusion, social and financial. In other words, if you've got no money and no mates, the chances are you're going to spend more time outside than other people who have got friends and 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 cash. So you don't need an address. Some people will have an address, but that you can easily be homeless indoors. Just having somewhere to sleep doesn't necessarily mean that the issues that are plaguing you or dogging you through your life have gone. So, so yes. It is more likely that you will have um, longer periods of rough sleeping at the beginning of when you're selling the magazine than later on. Because one of the first things we'll try and do is get people off the streets because obviously it's not a safe place right, so to be at night. So that's the other thing. So I've got my five copies. Uh, let's say I've sold them within the first two days, yep. you know, hopefully, or whatever, a day. I come back to you, I buy more. Mm -hmm. When you say that you then try and help them with where they live... What's all that side? That's is it just the magazine, or you then take it further into other? So the Big Issue Foundation started uh, four years after the business began, because the magazine um, came to understand that, in very simple terms, when someone gets economically active in the marketplace and free to be exploited like at work, just like the rest of us, then there are opportunities to deal with the issues that brought them to us. So the Big Issue Foundation, the charity, the bit that I'm chief exec of, was established to deal with those issues. Um, so we work across a whole host of areas that you would kind of imagine. So we work in terms of housing, in terms of health, in terms of financial inclusion. Um, but the way that we do it is um, different than you might expect, particularly given our size. So we used to, for example, um, have the kind of services that you'd imagine the homeless organisation would have. So we'd have like a, a JET team, jobs, education and training. We had an IT training suite in Birmingham, a couple of IT trainers, a whole bunch of homeless dudes Googling their names. Funders loved it, looked brilliant. You could go in and sort of wave and everyone would wave back, but there were some issues with that. Number one, expensive. Uh, number two, strategically not that kind of flexible. And actually, out there, there were a lot, be lot better set-up organisations to, for example, deal with IT training. So we stopped providing those services on the basis that other people did it better than we did. And also there was a kind of internal organisational arrogance that we should have these services because that's what you expect us to do. But we trade on the things that we're absolutely best at, which is our relationship with people experiencing homelessness, amongst other things. And I suppose the, the nub of it, when I think about it, is, is that um, if, if you're unfortunate enough to be homeless, street homeless tonight, any other organisation that you would encounter, your status would be that of a client. Okay, you would be the recipient of whatever that organisation chose to do for you. It's not criticism, it's merely a sort of statement of your relationship. But when you come to us, you're a customer, because I don't employ you. And you think, well, okay, you choose where you want to spend your money, what bar you want to go to, what restaurant, wherever you're going to go and spend your cash. 
Well, as a person experiencing exclusion, you come to us on that basis, which is the basis for being a customer. And independent. Independence. And whilst empowerment is a horribly overused word, the fact that you choose to turn up is a really big thing. So for other organisations that work with people experiencing homelessness, your status would be... You'd be thought of as chaotic and hard to reach. Or but helping them for a one day, two days. Perhaps, but just in simple terms, you're defined as chaotic and hard to reach. Whereas we see you all the time because we have a product that you want to spend your own money on. So you choose to come to us. So you're not chaotic and hard to reach at all. Quite the opposite. We're, I, I know who you are and what's going on and everything else. So those other organisations want to work with us. So we bridge between those organisations and our vendors. So we can get people to the services that are appropriate for them. So we don't have a kind of one-size-fits-all program of help. Um, the issues that might be specific to you are going to be different to, it, to you as they would be to me. And so we can dip in and out of the different service providers. So each person gets the kind of support that's specific to them. So it's a very innovative way of working. But bottom line, it's a high-impact kind of low-cost model. So last year we worked with just over 2,200 big-issue vendors. And we measure kind of every positive step along the way so for on a scale of zero to ten so for example if you were chaotic rough sleeping outside that's a zero if you're happily and safely accommodated that's a ten across the various areas that we work we achieved over 5,800 positive outcomes an average fully cost recovered price of only 150 pounds a go so by accessing other service providers we can maintain a low cost yeah. model we can work with a lot more people and we can get them results that are very specific to them and if we tried to do all that ourselves we'd have to be the biggest homeless organization in yeah. the world but as a charity we turn over just a million quid a year we're not funded from newspaper sales we're independently funded and we've got a very good model that works and actually to to do everything we do brilliantly in some places we need to turn over two million and that's as big as we need to be so the one of the things that's really important is that we haven't got this ambition to become yeah. as big as the magazine looks you just want to make sure there's a consistency of services of I don't know how you do, do you, does it. We work hard and we make friends. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Who help make, help oh make our God. lives easier. What are the, are the numbers for the homeless <coughs> now? Like what are statistics for homeless people in, like in London? <coughs> um, there are all sorts of statistics out there. Um, I suppose I, I'd sort of qualify those. Um, there's the recent stuff that Crisis have put out that's saying last year over 7,500 people were sleeping rough in London <laughs> that were spotted by outreach. But... There's some really important things to understand in all of those kind of counts because the process of doing a rough sleep account is you two would go out on a given night and you'd be looking for someone who is bedding down, i.e. looking like they're about to go to bed. So if you were sat up on a park bench, it wouldn't count, which is also why you've got all the park benches in Westminster have arms in the middle, so you can't lie on them, yeah. for example. So you don't count. So you're looking for someone who's kind of looking like they're bedding down. You then go back and you hand that list over to me and a colleague about four hours later, Changes. we go back out. And if that person is still there, they count as one. All right. So the idea that, you know, seven and a half thousand people were found like that. Double that. Easily, because... Yeah, you know, no one ever really counted me. And I know a lot of people <coughs> that haven't got a home and they live in their cars. I've been living in my car oh for yeah. about six different times I lived in my car. Sleeping in my jag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a jag. Yeah. <laughs> it was a Fiesta with a broken hand gear. <laughs> it had about four inches of hand gear that I tried to get with. Yeah, I mean, it's something you yeah. can't count, is well, it? Well, no. you know, the, reali the reality is, you know, if you're going to sleep out, it's dangerous. You know, you know, people will spit on you, piss on you, beat you up, all sorts of stuff. So lots Who of people, that, well, lots of people will therefore hide. So you're not going to be found in any of those sleep rough sleep accounts at all. I can give you a good example. I think was one of the vendors I know used to sleep outside or oh, whatever the theatre is where the Lion King was on for ages, the Lyceum. 
And like um, one Friday night, a couple of blokes, three blokes walked past, having a laugh. He was bedding down for the night with his magazines in his sleeping bag. Oh, big they issue, guys. Well. Yeah, yeah. They ah. no, and they came back um, about you know an hour later with um, two buckets of water and poured it over him. So he had his <laughs> magazines covered in water, and he was, and they were walking off laughing. Now, can you imagine? You go it's around the corner, you go, bath. oh, Theo, mate, yeah, I've got yeah, an yeah. idea. Let's get a bucket of water and go and pour it over that rough sleeper. So. Lots but it's not as well. He's like, like you said, he's a businessman as well. Yeah. We can see that he's doing. Well, they ruined his product. Yeah, yeah. So, th so therefore, a lot of people will obviously not be found in rough sleep accounts because they don't want those kind of experiences because they'll have had them or they'll have heard about them. But also, a lot of people who are new to the street won't sleep on the streets at night. They'll walk at night and they'll sleep in the day because in the day you can sleep in shopping centres and train stations and McDonald's or wherever. So. A rough sleep account looking at people that yeah. night is, is looking for people very visibly bedded down, not the people that are hidden and not the people that are walking, which is why we do a uh, Big Issue Night Walk to kind of recognise the fact as, as a fundraiser, but also recognise the fact that any alarming statistic you hear is way more alarming than you can possibly imagine. I you know, I saw um, last year, this is this <coughs> no joke, they, they have anti-homelessness um, spikes that they put in the floors at certain places and council blocks and things yeah. to stop human beings lying anywhere. But that but certainly <laughs> picked up quite a lot of media attraction. I mean, that, that kind of architectural engineering to exclude people isn't, isn't a new thing, uh -huh. um, but it's kind of a feature that's out there and quite a lot of people have been upset about the different versions of that because it, it has all this kind of inferences. But it's I more symbolic, I think. It's more symbolic of an idea of exclusion because yeah. that exclusion is still there anyway. Yeah, it yeah, just right, allows yeah. people to focus their attention it's at a very specific organisation. Yeah. Oh, you're you're terrible. I don't. <coughs> I don't accept. There shouldn't be a sort of an. Uh, uh, <laughs> the word homelessness shouldn't exist. You know, if somebody says you're homeless, mm. I know it's just normal now. But again, for me, not. You know, I didn't watch TV for years and years. I didn't know who anybody was or mm. prime minister. I didn't know any. I was really mm -hmm. ignorant. Like ten years, I was outside of anything to do with anything. And when people like to say, I, I so I didn't learn a lot of vernacular that you pick up. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand people being homeless. Like I, when I left home when yep. I was a kid and I was on home, I didn't know there was other people on the home that like mm -hmm. that did that. I thought it was just me in my world and I'm the bottom yep. of the world. So I sort of, I, I always negated around it, but I don't accept there has to be a, something called homelessness. It's an, it's out, it's an output of something else, isn't it? That's the thing. It's a, it's a status. It's, it's simply your status. You don't have yeah, somewhere don't to stay. It, I mean but like it means something else to people. It's got a far bigger influence as a word because it has this sort of three-dimensional idea of fecklessness, of idleness, of addiction, of all these kind of things where it's simply an output See, I of something else. See, I don't think it does. I think when you say the word homeless, to me, it just means someone who doesn't have a home. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, but I what's would brought you there? No, that but I don't think I can give you some good examples of that. the two together. I well, it's interesting. So, for example... Um, People will often have a definition of homelessness, which is it carries a kind of Im implicit negativity to it. It's something more than just not having a home. And strangely, people facing extreme exclusion will hold some of those prejudices themselves. Mm. So, for example, if you go and talk to people at food banks and say, actually, look, if you wanted a chance to get some money to afford some food, one of the things you could be doing is buying some of the big issue. And people go, oh, no, I'm starving. I'm not homeless as though that's even worse than yeah. starving. And you can talk to people when they come out of prison and they go, oh, no, no, I'm a villain. I'm not homeless. I've got my pride. You might have a cardigan on with £1.50 that you went into prison with and you were out released to the streets in freezing January. But you're like, no, I'm not homeless. God, no. Yeah, you, you know, know what? So I it's a very interesting yeah. status. I was so I embarrassed. I a personal thing because I personally wouldn't necessarily, necessarily think 
homelessness comes hand in hand. I actually think homelessness comes with more the the way the problems that you've had to face, which might be like bad family life and everything. I'm not quite sure there's anything wrong with saying that someone's homeless. That's just unfortunately the circumstances that you're in. That, like you said, it's more of a status. It's, it's I think that's really bad to mm. think that because you're homeless, you're an addict. I'm not quite sure those two go together. I, I think you're. I think you're correct. But I'm just reflecting back. Is that actually everyone thinks for yeah. a lot of people, the, the phrase homelessness or home uh, that status as homeless is pretty much as low as you could be. Yeah, you, you failed be, at everything. You could come out of prison. Roof. You could be starving. You could be a vet, veteran from the Afghanistan yeah, war. Yeah. But you're not homeless. Why? Of course. People think, <laughs> no. oh yeah, why you, you know. ended up there? Yeah. <laughs> I knew a guy who used to stand up, and he lived in this car, and he was ho- sort of half really? used to it. Yeah. Do you know why? Because just go to the gym and have a shower, and you come out. I think the thing about the homelessness then, maybe it because it it brings up such bad feelings, is that you think everyone goes, oh, there must be something you can do. There must be somewhere you can mm. stay. Because people always think, oh, well, the government will help this and that. And, oh, they, they're on the streets because they've chosen to me. But maybe that's why it brings such a... Because yeah, I people suppose you do think, oh, surely there's something you could do about that. People sometimes sort of say it's a lifestyle choice. <laughs> you know, like you know, like being a surfer or something. Yeah. You know, like, like you know, yeah, sofa man, surfer. It's like the silver surfer. You know, it's 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 not the case at all. Um, one of the, I suppose, one of the things there as well is that you trade. Um, peop- everyone trades in stereotypes, particularly in big busy cities where there's lots of stuff kind of competing for your time. And so, one of the things that's quite a challenge for our vendors is if, if for example, you know, you've got a thirty-five pound pair of decent shoes that you bought from you know, a discount sports shop, someone will come up to you and go, where'd you get those shoes from? Because they'd actually prefer this idea of a Dickensian homeless person mm. with their toes sticking out, go, oh, go, bless you, Governor, <laughs> me and little Jimmy Riddle. And the idea that you've gone to work and earned the money and you pay for a decent pair of shoes because you stand on the street for seven hours a day upsets people. And if you just put into Twitter the words big issue, you will see people s- putting stuff in that space that's close to hate crime. And 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 that's people trading in stereotypes and misconceptions. People complain that our vendors have got uh, mobile phones, like they should have, yeah. you know, a can with a piece of string on it, yeah. another can, so they can shout at people. Like just because you've got less buying power because you're homeless doesn't mean you don't want the same things as everybody so else. It means you can't afford you them. Like okay, so say I'm one of those people. Then my, wh- where do they get that phone from? Then where do they charge their phone? How do they afford the bills on that every month? Especially if you're starting out. Well, when you're starting out, you might not have enough cash for it at that moment. But um, you can buy a mobile phone for virtually nothing. Uh, you can use pay as you go, or you'll have a contract. You know, if you've gone to work and you've got the money for it, and you're whole paying for that contract through your economic activity, you're a participative member of democratic yeah. society. I knew, I knew. Why can't you have a phone? And, when and, I, when and people have to kind of unpick that sometimes in their mind and go, well, actually, you know, homeless people should, should look like homeless people. <laughs> actually, a whole bunch of people who are experiencing homelessness, you wouldn't be able to spot them a mile off. Yeah, mm. the thing is, like, there's a lot of things, you, like, you, what, you, you've had a nice life, you know, you, you've got a fair life. You, for, you don't realise what you can do if you're forced into doing it. So. I worked at a nightclub and every day I worked there, it was only the weekends that place, a guy would come past and he was homeless and we'd plug his phone in for him. Mm. And that happens at hotels mm. and things. You know, I do. If I go somewhere, I'll plug my phone into. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's things like that. When I was uh, living on the street, just at the end of it, I was dating somebody. Uh, like, she didn't know really? I was homeless. Because what I would do is I'd... Go shower in like... Yeah, I'd go to like a gym. You stuff. talk yourself into one gym. I'll have left my card can I and then you just go oh to another that's place how you do it. Uh, yeah then you go <laughs> yeah, back he's, he's doing it right now or you you just go to a pub and you have yeah. a wash there yeah, but yeah, I would course. go to like um on uh, late nights I'd go to um laundrettes 
and I just wait for a bloke to start doing his washing and nobody hangs around and then it goes into the drying machine and then when it's because they don't lock so I'd just go in and I'd grab clothes and she'd go, I'd be wearing like weird socks and like a weird jacket. She'd go, doesn't make any sense. I had no sense of fashion sense. But it's again, covered she, in lint. But she didn't, yeah, <laughs> you smell lovely. But she, she, like, she had no idea that but I was homeless. But you know what, credit to you, that's the thing though. It's giving you that self-empowerment thing. I want to look smart on the street. I want to be doing I was just embarrassed oh. of anybody seeing. I didn't actually care, but I was embarrassed of like what you were saying. I was mm. embarrassed that anybody would think that I was living on but the street. But that, that's a good thing because it makes you still feel like you were saying earlier, human. It's I think the really bad thing is when you actually do not care. Yeah, that you was a funny thing. You don't care what you look like, what you smell after like. After the what first you week of being on the street, I noticed like it, I almost felt comfortable. I thought because I was scared of people in a way. I had really bad problems as a kid. So when I left home, just people and stuff happening was really scary to me. So I'd like remove myself and going back to like people counting you, I'd go to the furthest reaches of somewhere behind yeah. somewhere. Or if, like when office workers were having lunch, I'd go and sit there because it felt like I was a normal person. Part like part nobody would know yeah. I wasn't with them. Um, I slept in a bin once, you know, that hiding from people. Well, actually, what's that, like I was the what they call your nadir when you reach your lowest point. There was one point where I was live on the street and I got woken up because the rats were nibbling at my this bomber jacket I had and I had to climb into this bloody cardboard bin and like slide the lid across and it actually felt fairly safe. I was actually quite happy in there. See, yeah. you, the, what you're, you get used to as a human, like, you I was like, this is great. But one of the things you're saying there, it's really interesting because people often say like, you know, homeless people, they're kind of idle, but actually the amount of work that yeah, you were doing in that space to maintain your own sense of self and your own yeah. impressions of normality was far harder than the average job. Yeah. Yeah, people go, oh, homeless people, they're so lazy. You try doing all that stuff. You yeah, know how hard it is. I was just going to say, what do you do all day? It's the con Like you said, you're thinking about the next hour. I mean, I know what I'm like. I love to be busy. But then what must you do when the yeah, whole day... Yeah, it's a different day, universe. No, 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 but that's what I mean. Yeah. What must you do when not only the day spreads out before you, well, the whole week, even, mm. even the next hour, you're like... What do I do? Yeah, I'm time. Time is your time enemy. Is like it, it's like the worst thing. Like you can't wait you can't to sleep. sleep. It's not, no, no but you you're want not to sleeping. sleep because sleep takes time of the do day you up. Sleep? Uh, what then? No, I, I could not imagine actually falling asleep like that. Oh no, no. The cold, the the uncomfortable. Yeah, you get used to those sort of things quite quickly. You'd be surprised how quickly you get used to it. But it's the, the it, time's the worst thing. Especially when you feel like quite sapient and you feel like a human being because you you're built you've got this system built into you of when you should sleep and whatnot and you want to sleep but not because you're so much tired it's just you want time to fucking hurry up just you, to, yeah, you want it to be night time yeah. you want it to be daytime there's only so much things you can do before you run out like if you go and walk around London well, that's now what I mean. after People a couple are hours you get bored mm -hmm. but how you done? deal with it is you just shut down your brain just goes and you slide back out of society and then time just goes away it's a scary thing where you but don't that care is scary. anymore that's why it takes I think, so much courage for these mm. people to come yeah. and do that to think i could make it better because you would hit a low point and just think do you know what fuck it that's uh, whatever like, that's uh, it but How you've got it your job here i mean the big issue that's the, that's why i'm saying the thing that's really yeah powerful about the big issue is the gives first thing purpose. it does is yeah. give you a purpose and it gives you your own purpose and it gives you something to work out like a human being as you want yeah. to yeah and and the, the whole bit there is that in some of those things, you will have to break through some of those stereotypes and barriers that are reflected back at you in order to keep your business going. So you will have to deal with ignorant people who want to tell you they what they think so of you. Hard. And 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 you have to brush that off. Just like a face-to-face -face sales job, you know, smile and dial time. You need to be able to kind of maintain a sense of Do personal conviction to get your job done. There was um something I watched a few weeks ago, like 
in the last two months I've cried on my own because of something I'd seen and one of them was a guy it's one of these YouTube things and somebody sent it to me oh look this guy's homeless and he was sort of like oh you're you know homeless he sent it to me and it was a guy and it's something's in San Francisco Bob I've no idea he's got a big beard no (laughs) and um that's he, not James and Bob. They've got a. Re- he's, it's in San Francisco. And it's, it's a restaurant. It's two, three of the day, and they've put a piano outside this Italian restaurant. Yeah. And there's a woman's watching him, and this guy who's is like all his arms all ripped up at the back, and he's sunburnt, and he's got like hardly a big long beard. He's playing this classical piece on the piano, and there's a woman filming a young woman, and a woman comes up to her next to him and goes, "Do you know?" You can hear her say, "Do you know how hard that piece is to play?" And he's playing this thing. He's a homeless yeah. guy. And I was watching it, and the piece was so beautiful, just the sound of it as well. And it's so complicated. Mm. His feet are up and down, his hands. And the woman goes, do you know how hard that piece is to play? Anyway, I I was watching it, and I cried at that because I thought, you see, like, he's not, that's the very definition of someone who's like a genius. And they go and speak to him in the second version. They go back to speak to him, this guy, because he goes every day to play. And they say to him, like, what happened? And he looks like he's just stepped off a pirate ship. Like, that's how bad he looks like all his arms yeah, were burnt yeah. and things and um they said like how do you how did you like end up here and he's saying well, i was in the um i was a soldier in the army and i came out of the army and i didn't have this and then my wife i was a bit mentally and then that fell through and then that broke me down even further yeah and then he just ended up on the street and i was like oh god and she said to him oh so how did you learn to play this and he said i can play an instrument he said i said he said from like a piccolo to so and so i can more play an instrument and i thought and he's on the mm. streets with his arms all sunburnt and ripped up and it was so fucking depressing. Well, I think that's what's scary about homelessness and maybe that's why people are so off-put off put by it. It's so scary because out of anything, drugs, okay, you might be on those people. You can say, oh, I'll never do it, but you might try it. But, you know, you, you, can, you can at least say no, but homelessness is one of those things that it could literally happen to anyone. You could be, these stories, aren't they, of these CEOs who, you know, I don't know, a, a thing falls through the, or has a divorce, the kids don't like him, blah, and it, it's just a steady, and you can be homeless, and that can happen to anyone, and it's terrifying because there's no way you can protect yourself against that really yeah there's one of your statistics i read in somewhere in one of your pamphlets about your three wages away from being i think that's the average statistic and it goes back to what we were saying on the last podcast about people getting mortgages and things and we've built into trying to show off so much that whatever money you get you spend the absolute limit i can afford but then if there's any sort of upturn in society or any it throws you out the boat straight away and only then you know something happens in your relationship goes downhill because you're not feeling up to this or that and then okay well let's go and take the kids to my mum's because of that and then oh now you have a drink on your own and now you go and drink at the pub for too long. Now somebody walks into the pub, he's got drugs. Oh, let, let's spend some more drugs. Oh, yeah. hey, give me some money and I'll start Within that company months. for you. Oh, that fell. Now your wife's annoyed. Now she wants to divorce. And that's how it happens, mm. man. You do so slowly. Well, another video <coughs> that is really yeah. um, uh, famous is that uh, black guy in America who's got, the what's he called? The, the voice of mad like his magic voice or something and he used to be a news reporter and his voice is ridiculous it's like hi and welcome to radio (laughs) four and he's amazing and he's this he's so homeless and this guy was like do it do it man say it and he says it and it's just like how and and it's this story about how he got to where he is and it's just there's a guy when i um, recently moved into uh, london 
I didn't realise I'd moved near to like a homeless shelter. Right. So it's perfect torture for me because I have to try and blind myself to keep focus on what I'm doing anyway. And but when it's there, it affects me. Yeah. And I just walked the opposite direction to the flat one day, and it was there. And I was like, right. "Oh Jesus, it's right by the shop that I go to every day." Yeah. And so there's people out there all the time. You know, it's open for like however many hours do they? But first thing in the morning, there's always a couple of people outside waiting mm-hmm. to get in, and they sort of more or less look the same. But then the other day, uh, two weeks ago, no, longer than that, I went to the shop in the morning. I came back, it was about quarter to seven in the morning. And there was a guy sat outside and he was crying. Like he was waiting to get in. And you can tell when you know, when you're around it enough, you can tell how long somebody's been on the streets by how clean they look. Or, and he had fresh bags, the Tesco bags, and the handles were still there. And he was sat there and his shoes were tied up properly. The laces were clean. And he was crying. And the worst thing is, it's like what I've said before. When you're when you're crying, it's sort of a healing. You're you're you're, uh, you're, you're fresh. You know what I mean. When you're not crying, it's a, person, it's a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact he was crying, and I was looking at the bags, I thought he's yeah. just got here today. And I was thinking, shit, what happened last night when? Now you've got to go. I've got to go to a homeless well, shelter. Th- there's nowhere no else you can go. And that affected me for two solid weeks. That guy was on my mind every day because it was cold as well. The only th- I don't use wear jackets, but I had a jacket on that morning. And I walked past him and then I felt terrible. I was up in my room and I sat there and I cried for a couple of minutes because I just like, I felt so guilty that I didn't know what to do. Because I could quite easily, I know, go, look, come here, let me help. And I have to go past it every day and see people. And I have to keep being selfish and go, no, you can't just start grabbing individuals because then it just stops everything else you're doing. But it was so, it was really bad just seeing something that's like fresh on the street. It was really, really bad. And that place, like I see people coming out of it all the time. And whenever you like where you walk past them almost to a man they all look down when you walk past them like they don't feel or they jump off the curb a lot of times it's silly things like i'll try and get off the curb before them because it's a very short curb where you walk along to get there but they all jump off the curb and they've got their heads down. It's like it's they're a broken. It's that we, we do that, that psychology that you suddenly, you don't even realise, but you, you don't... You feel less. You feel like you're at the bottom. And you do it. I mean, I don't think you mean to, but yeah, you probably waiting for them to jump off the curb. Why does our psychology make us do it's that? It's weird, isn't it? I mean, that, avo- that av- kind of avoiding people thing is a very kind of human sort of reaction when they, they see people who are homeless. And one of the things that um, we've run for a, a, a programme for a number of years now is we take people out um, from um, businesses and get them to sell the Big Issue magazine. And w- this all started with uh, something we were doing with um, HSBC Retail Bank some years ago in Covent Garden, where we took out, I didn't even know they could call them retail banks, but you know when you go to the bank and someone's, hello, would you like an ISA? And you're yeah. trying to get sort of 40 quid out. They think they're really oh, right. good at yeah, face-to-face yeah. sales yeah. jobs. So they said, look, we are the recipients of some of the most expensive, best sales training in the world. We can sell to anyone. So well intended we would like to pass on some of that training to your vendors so that they are financially better off from this day of volunteering so i so, said so, you know how do you went up chat with our vendors and how do you fancy working with a bunch of bankers mm-hmm. and you know they're like well you know let's give it a go and of course what happened was as soon as those people put on a tabard and held up a copy of a magazine they were no longer representatives of their banks with awesome sales training skills they were homeless, feckless, drug-addicted, idle and useless. And so they had this experience of literally just being on a plastic jacket and holding up a piece of paper and suddenly becoming somebody else. They like did telepo- that outside? Yeah, yeah, in Covent Garden. So it's like teleporting out of your own body into another life. But then... 
the world starts treating you as that person. You yeah. know who you are. And you believe it after a while, don't you? Well, if you're in that position yourself, it proves just how tough it is because people start using the wrong side of their mobile phone in a Moses-esque way, the public part. People will start tell you to get a job. One person was actually asked to leave the coffee shop he normally goes to for lunch when he took his vendor in. He sort of took off his jacket and sort of said, it's me and I'm never coming back. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And when we had a feedback session at the end of that day, one of the most interesting things was because obviously big organizations get concerned about health and safety so they're trying to talk at the beginning so you know they're a bit worried you know what happens if somebody bites one of our members of staff or something and they weren't saying that but there was this like kind of fear and we'll say like yeah. covent garden broad daylight 10 o'clock on a tuesday it's fine the risk the health and safety risk the risk was people's own reaction in realizing that the way they had treated been treated that day was in fact the way that they had treated people who are homeless and they felt really bad about it because they were themselves they were just holding up a piece of paper with a tabard on and the next thing you know they literally become another person and we've taken that journey forward now with lots of different organizations lots of times it's with banks and law firms at one law firm it's day three of their induction so you're a new lawyer so the first day you sort of go upstairs and you you meet the partners and eat a swan or something and then you know you you get to meet all these kind of posh lawyers and day three you're out on the street selling the magazine because understanding what it's like to try and pitch when you don't have the benefits of being yourself is an incredibly valuable arrogance. very very valuable lesson and this week it's vendor week and we've got um different celebrities out selling the magazine oh, yeah. who of course will then have their own sort of take on what that's like and in fact because they will be identifiable as who they are so it's, it's less of an experience for them than than being not famous but again it just kind of gets people to understand from a personal point of view what it's like to be perceived as not yourself which is really alienating if you went out here you out on the street right now you know who you are you know how the world's going to react to you but if you went out here with a tabard in the magazine you'd be reacting very very yeah it's funny you have to sort of learn there's a different universe and that you're yeah. not part of these it's you a just parallel don't universe yeah exactly <laughs> oh what's happening with like food banks and that i don't really understand what they are because i was in tesco's um uh the express tesco's about three months ago and it was about quarter to eleven and I saw somebody pouring, you know, these like donuts and things. You know, these silver trays they've got at an angle. He was pouring it into like a a, a purple bag. And I walked past, and I sort of w- went around the corner, and I think, was he f- throwing that away? And I came back, and the thing was thigh high with like um, produce that he just poured straight into this bag. And it stuck with me. And I, I was in the, I went back out in the car, and I'm thinking, surely he's not chucking that away, that food away. And no I looked over the side of the car, which is at the back of the Tesco's Express, and there was two sacks full of clothes. And then I'm going, okay, that's one night. Two sacks of uh, two sacks of food. Oh, he was throwing it away. Yeah, they were throwing it. It was like two purple yeah, bags. Yeah, ridiculous. Mm. And then I was thinking, how many times do they do that? That's a Tesco Express. Mm. When. Anyway, so th- th- it was about three weeks ago now, um, uh, just over a month ago, I saw them doing it again, exactly the same place. Yeah. He, d- he was pouring it all into a bag, and there was three bags around the, th- the side this time. And I started adding up the numbers of like how much food must be getting chucked away that was just on sale 10 seconds ago. You could sell it legally 10 yep. seconds ago. I can't. And I now no, no, no. it I, pissed I, I, me I off because this. the whole... T- when I went home and I had to park up and walk past the home to shelter again, I was thinking of people I know that do things for charity. And I think... It if just one supermarket didn't throw all their food away. But they used to do that. It's this whole stupid... But it doesn't make sense. Why is that legal? It doesn't doesn't make any sense. I don't know how it's legal. Like A guy who used to eat the McDonald's, he said, you go around the back of the McDonald's after 40 minutes, like he knew that they throw Mm. it away. 
but then they put gates up, and then now they yeah, lock the bins. Yeah. I think, what sort of fucking world where you're saying, no, you need the food, but it's not like the food is wasted for two months somewhere. It's not on a hiatus. It's for sale. And sue yeah, but and sue them they should. They, you can't. The, seeing somebody tip food into a bag is horrific. It's horrific, and then you add up the tons of food that might, that that must be getting thrown away. That you just want to shake but someone. It's, and go, it's about it, a stop. billion, isn't it? One point something like two billion pounds or something is thrown away in waste. I refi- when I was waitressing, I was working at the ATP Awards, so this massive tennis event, and honestly, it, you, I wouldn't be able to describe to you the amount of food that was mm. thrown away, and it was. It was, oh God, I can't, it was just so much. And after a while, I refused to do it. I said, I'm not throwing it away. You can find someone else to do it. And I left. You can't I was throw like, food away. What, it's like you said, what world do we live in where that is acceptable and yeah. normal? I just. But what is it then? Is, yeah. Do you know about that? I don't need to use a spokesperson for everything to do with homelessness. But is that, what's going on with food? And I thought there was something where you, there'd be a company that collects food and yeah, gives it PC out somewhere. Like it used to work like that. It's now the government who. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, there are, there are a lot of. You know, you know, lot of organisations, a lot of organisations out there that are very kind of uh, connected to feeding their local community. So the food bank movement is massive, and there are a lot of people who are, you know, typically recycling stuff that's sort of more recyclable. So you know, dried pasta, canned yeah. food, stuff that doesn't have a, an immediate shelf shelf life. In that, what is scary is the scale of deprivation, the amount of people that literally can't afford to eat. Because if you can't afford to eat, to eat your choices are pretty limited, aren't they? Because you haven't got any money. So you're going to start nicking from your local Tesco Express. Well, you might you might get caught. Oh, well, you might get a conviction. Well, that's going to make it really hard for you to get a job to get some money in the first place. So people are trying to meet that immediate need at the sort of that very point. And I think there's a, a lot to be said for the power of what food banks are doing in terms of creating a form of social cohesion. And people find it shameful that they can't afford to eat. It's a shame that they can't feed their kids and what so have you. So it's got, it's really, it's a really loaded... But there's, there's no thing. company now that can just go around and like it's set There are up lots of organisations that do distribute stuff. Like a 24-hour, you know, this, this food is good for 24 hours. Just call it that. But the thing yeah. is, food is good for weeks yeah. after. It really actually pisses me off when even my <laughs> friends will go, oh, this yoghurt's a, a day out of date. Yeah, oh, we spoke about that before. Lord, yeah. just <laughs> smell it. Does it look okay? Yeah. Even if it's yeah. got mould, scrape it off. This is why I never get a cold because, oh... The yeah, that Best Buy date isn't, doesn't drop off suddenly. They're not cutting it that fine. There's a couple me. of weeks. Yeah, I know. They're just protecting yeah. themselves. But I, mean, I knew when I was uh, I uh, when I was living homeless, I somehow was in London and ended up in Welling Garden City, and I've no idea how it happened. I haven't got a clue. Well, I genuinely haven't got a clue. But I was living in Welling Garden City, and um, we used to have this van that used to come around to give us food, like every now and again, because you sort of collate with like kids on Friday night, and ran the station, and the van pulled up and it used to come and give us food. But they're always trying to get you. To, they they would start talking to you about Christian things. All <laughs> oh, the missionaries. And then they say, oh, "Look, play the play. Look, play this um, a musical piece. Had like electronic keyboard. I think it was to give you confidence and something. She'd play with you. And then, but it's always to get you in. <laughs> so you'd have to go along with it because the second they got <laughs> really a sniff that food. you weren't bothered, they would kick you out. Thought, oh, that's Christian. Oh, <laughs> it's that's this terrible so cool. little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, one of the things <laughs> that is really good in that space is that, in well, may, maybe good, maybe not. But the thing is, people are getting really bothered by the fact that it's really hard to see any change out there. And food banks is one of those examples of meeting a need. But a lot of people out there are just trying to do something because they think, well, I can't change the system. I can't, you know, I don't trust the government to change this. You know, um, I I personally need to do, you know, something myself. You know, the, the, the loss of an assured short home tenancy in London now is the primary reason for people becoming homeless. In fact, you could do 
something about that because that's it's not about relationship breakdown it's not about a history of drink drugs and mental health problems it's actually about legislation being wrong in that space and forcing people to become homeless but also people kind of getting together and being more entrepreneurial and kind of trying to come up with their own solutions and and come up with different ways of working and that actually strikes a chord with people so i did um I did a little project a little while ago um, with a couple of women who came up with this idea called Crack and Cider, which um, was based on them discussing between themselves why they hadn't given some money to a homeless guy. They, I think they saw in Berlin. And they came up with this idea, well, maybe it's because we're worried about he might go and spend it on Crack and Cider or drink and drugs that they saw at the time. So they kind of came up with this sort of pop-up shop idea whereby you could buy a sleeping bag, a rucksack, and so on and so forth for a limited period of time. And um, that they at that point were then going to sort of distribute that to people who are homeless. So th- and they sort of went on this journey because they were really determined to do it. And I was quite cynical when I was like saying, "Well, this is a huge exercise in stereotypes because if I've got a crack problem the size of a fucking horse, I'm going to sell that sleeping bag and that rucksack for less than the price somebody's just paid for it. But also, you're going to be walking around looking for Wurzel Gummidge-style homeless people to give them the rucksack to." I was making the point that actually lots of people who are experiencing exclusion don't want to look like Wurzel Gummidge. You know, they have some pride. That's a hell of a reference, yeah. by the way. I don't think they're going to get <laughs> yes, Wurzel Gummidge. You're really I'm too assume, young to know I'm who Wurzel Gummidge is. Yeah, Google it. <laughs> some I wanted to work John Furt to in God, that took me back reference. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, but you're looking for a stereotypical homeless person. And I was saying, actually, you know, people don't look like stereotypes necessarily. So you kind of need to think about that. And which they, you know, courageously did. And they came up with this little pop-up shop and got a lot of traction but from calling it quite confrontationally, sort of crack inside it. And I thought, well, if you sort of made a thousand pounds out of this, you've done quite well. It's two weeks before Christmas. Last time I spoke to them, they were over 30 grand. And it really it had a resonance. Not, uh, not um, What I suppose I'm saying is I didn't think necessarily all the ideas are great, but actually they were bothered enough to do something and see it through. And bizarrely, in the pop-up shop, someone from Game of Thrones came in, tweeted it, and it just went mental. You know, Caitlin Moran ended up doing stuff. And it, it kind of got this life of its own. But underneath that, there was this sort of raging debate between homeless organisations about, is this good, is this bad? And the whole point was, they did something. And I think some people are just thinking enough is enough. You yeah. know, I'm not going to wait for a, you know, a new mayor yeah. to come along and make it all go away. I'm going to do what I can in the same ways you're happy to talk about in this space but you're doing something yeah, it's much more powerful than just going oh it's so awful that, I'm going to pretend it's not the there the thing about the food being thrown away I wrote that down somewhere because I said that's ridiculous there's got to be somewhere and I was waiting to speak to you about it actually and someone else about there must be a company that get collects all the food and when I was throwing it out I realised it wasn't but I wrote that down somewhere I said well that's got to go as well like I wrote it down mm. that's ridiculous that's like a big thing that's just waiting there all food everywhere should have 24 out of 48 hours where they it's all collected yep. everywhere and taken somewhere. Yep. As a basic, that sh- I shouldn't even have to bring that up. Some people are doing it. I mean, pret and are very big at redistributing all, all of the oh food yeah. that's not been um, eaten during the day to, to disadvantage So there's a people. model there for well, it. They yeah, they do that. yeah, they do it, and they do it really well. And you get you know, lots of homeless people complaining yeah. about the, you know, the crayfish and rocket sandwich because <laughs> that's what they've had too much of. But jokes aside... You know, it's that some people do actually sort of run their business on that basis, and I think that's really admirable. So there are models out there. People can do it if they want to. And yeah. For them, it's a good thing to be seen to be doing because it underlies the fact that it's fresh and it's freshly made that day and all that stuff, yeah. but they don't waste it. Can so I that's a good thing. I've got two really, really quick questions before yep. we finish. They're not general knowledge, are they? No. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> 
We're going to say one idea. What's the capital of? Oh, no. Um, Two things I really wanted to know about. One, is it competitive to be a vendor? As in, do you have a certain amount of people that can do it? Or can, can you have as many people as you want doing it? And also, what I was thinking about with you know when you said they earn money Mm -hmm. so say over that week they've earned i don't know could it be up to 100 quid where do they put that do they keep it on them or do you have a little bank that they can what do they do with that money on them uh to answer your first question there is plenty of space for all i mean in london we have 500 active vendors but there are loads and loads and loads of pitches so there is not a problem there at all and right across the uk that is a a not a not a challenge um so that that's Mm -hmm, absolutely mm -hmm. fine um to um, answer your second question, um, the in a s- slightly kind of longer-winded way, the idea of getting money is a very important thing because once you start to get money, um, you will need somewhere to put it. Uh, so uh, you might not uh, have anywhere to put it because you've kind of walked away from your bank account, as it were. Um, you've lost your birth certificate. You've sold your passport around the back of King's Cross for 300 quid on a rainy night, which you can do, but I don't recommend it. Um, uh, but if you don't have a birth certificate and a passport, you don't have a bank account. If you don't have a bank account and you qualify for benefits, they won't be paid. So one of the things that we do in the charity is get their ba- people's basic ID back, get you, you know, get you sorted in that way so that you can access mainstream banking because we don't want you to have some sort of crappy bank account for homeless people. You should be able to get a bank account. And so we work very hard to make sure we get people bank accounts. And, all oh, and, okay. and so in that space, we want people to have exactly the same things as the rest of us and the choices that that creates. Yeah. Back to the personal development. Yeah, that that's... Oh, sorry, I've got to speak to Zach for one second. Okay, so, sorry about that. Um, yeah, we just want to record some extra time. Um, so, Zach, if we... I don't know why I took the headphones off for that. <laughs> <laughs> poor <laughs> Zach. Poor Zach's <laughs> just done a marathon and he's... <laughs> every foot. Can we record... Could we start another recording for, like, an extra 20 minutes? Yeah? Okay, listen, so we're going to uh, take a break for a second because we're running out of time and we'll be back to you with uh, the backstory to Stephen Robertson. Are we on? We're back. Okay. Um, right, so we're back. We'll just take a short break, just uh, uh, technical equipment uh, uh, problems. <laughs> so, <laughs> Stephen, you worked at our price. <laughs> I did, yeah. Our price. Do you even know that? Yeah, I did. Do you remember re- it? You were there for like 10 years or something, weren't you? Something like that. I'm probably about 13. Record I think. store. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, yeah, I was uh, <laughs> kicking around in... How old were you? Uh, I started there when I was 22. Did you? Okay. Yeah, because I, I kind of was kicking around at college and I wasn't really any good at anything. And I kept what was you doing at college? Oh, just A-levels repeatedly and okay. kept doing them badly. So, um, you a punk? No, <laughs> no, I just never paid attention. <laughs> <laughs> My exam technique wasn't very good. It was very smart, but I just couldn't get it out. Uh, and I just saw uh, an advert in the window for a sales assistant. And uh, I went in for an interview and I had half an hour discussion about the, the, the rights and wrongs of factory records, which I won. And uh, I got the job, and so I kind of accidentally fell into it, really. And I kind of always liked buying records, and it was even better working in a record shop. So yeah. I kind of, and our price is one of those kind of organisations that had a kind of internal promotion policy. So if you hung around for long enough and could sit up without dribbling, which I could do both, <laughs> you ended up kind of getting promoted. So, <laughs> and I ended up being in charge of King's Road Shop um, in London. Um, and then I got promoted and started becoming an area manager. Did you so like music? Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Like totally. who? Um, God, everything. I massive, diverse taste in stuff. So, so it was a, 
it's a bit of a dangerous place to work because obviously you've got a discount as well. So <laughs> you could kind of fund your own music habit <laughs> at cost. So there's just records then? Uh, well, uh, there was, yeah, it was records and tapes. And then I was oh, there tapes, when they right. started to introduce Cassettes. CDs. Yeah. So I remember them taking out a metre of vinyl and putting in like Dire Straits and Billy Joel CDs, thinking this is never going to work. <laughs> how, did it, did, from the, how did it go from like records to CDs? Was it quick or was it slow? Did people not trust it? It went fairly quickly, yeah. actually. It kind of, kind of hit that sort of certain moment. And, you know, the quality of CDs wasn't very good to begin with, but people just kind of thought they were really cool. By what happened to mini-discs? That was supposed to be the new thing. That yeah. kind of came and went a bit, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, I knew a guy who bought a mini-disc in-car player, and he only had three things <laughs> yeah. he could play. And exactly. then he gave up. He held it's on. Like he held on <laughs> for <laughs> like two years. Yeah. He said, no, it'd be fine. It'd be fine. And then you were seeing them for like 50p on the counter. Yeah, yeah. It's like Blu-ray, isn't they it? They probably like got some <laughs> retro value now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably, yeah. Specialist collector's market or something. Why so. did that not take off? Do you know? I don't know. Probably, uh, well, CDs won, didn't they? Everyone agreed that CDs were the new way to go and they started making more CD players than mini-disc players. Did you do many concerts and things when you was a kid? Was you like that much into it? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Well, we used to get we used to get free tickets to stuff as well. Oh. So I got to see things that you know, people I wouldn't have necessarily thought of going to see, like yeah. you know, Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash and things like that. Because <gasps> so it was great. So kind of looking back, it was like fantastic when see all these people that I wouldn't have thought necessarily yeah, the time yeah, to yeah. go and see. But Johnny Cash was fantastic. He did Ring of Fire with his big burning video, uh, big burning ring on a video. So you saw Johnny Cash, thinking, thinking this is heavy. You saw Johnny <laughs> Cash. Yeah, that's crazy. Isn't it? It's something funny you hear about people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was great. No, Do you play any well. music yourself? Uh, I can't. I'm completely no. tone deaf and talentless. <laughs> <laughs> What about dancing? You like a dance? <laughs> yeah, I like no. dancing. Yeah. yeah, I can do that. <laughs> what, what do you do in your spare time? I listen to music. <laughs> yeah. Oh, who do you like oh, now? Well, what right modern now. What modern stuff do you like well, now? Oh God, that's a bit putting me on the spot. I suppose what the things I bought recently. It's going to sound really pretentious. So Max Richter's done a, a big classical double album called Sleep, right? Which you're meant to put on whilst you sleep, and it's going to be written to fit with um, how your brain works actually oh. bits of it you're asleep for but I got it on double vinyl which is quite hard because you have to get up and turn it over <laughs> so, you know, why you know, did you get it on I don't know because it's white <laughs> <laughs> it's white oh vinyl I was, thinking this, I was thinking this is really cool yeah. so yeah so that kind of thing are you like classical music then oh, I like a whole range of stuff but oh. I particularly like I particularly like that so. I d dated this ballerina once when I was working in a nightclub she brought me into an old whole cultural world it was ridiculous the, the diversity between yeah. me and her but we went to a ballet once and then we went to an opera. And when I went to the opera, like the ballet was one thing, but it was a different thing I learned. She told me to, um, she said, don't worry about this and that. Just mm. watch how they're moving and how he lifts her. Like she knew yeah, not yeah. to, you know, the language to get to me. She said, don't worry about everything. I just watch how he lifts her. And I thought, oh, that was strange. Like I watched it, how strong the guy was and how yeah. she was dancing. And then we went to an opera. And then I heard somebody, she, the, I think she, well, what was the bloody name? It was a general thing, but she was um, uh, singing Ave Maria. Yeah. And I'd never heard that sort of sound come out of a human being. It's incredible. Like, it? I was fairly ignorant anyway, but when I, when it was like, I was like, what? That's yeah. like... Even, even, if you don't, even if you don't like it, you can just be impressed by the shit. Yeah, yeah. because I didn't know like, the words, but yeah. I, was, I felt emotional to the point where I was trying to pretend not to be emotional. Yeah. And I think, how strange is that, yeah. the sound of what that woman's yeah. doing? And I'm picking up on something there. But it's just certain people just you need to be open to things mm -hmm. like that, you know, to hear like be there and hear not to yeah. see it and go, I don't like it. So I think there's so many things where people are they, they they would be interested in things if it was just given to them in the right way. Yeah. Which is what we're doing with the magazine actually. We were just right. talking about not being able to cook mm -hmm. before we came back in. And um 
yeah, I said like I put in the magazine, uh, we put in there cooking for those who can't cook. I don't get that, can I just say? When people <laughs> say they can't cook, can you read? Can you follow yeah. a recipe? No, 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 no. How but can if, you not? See, that's like, you. That's your life look. again. If no, you, no, never... don't throw that in my face no, no, no. because I've had a nice life. No, I no, no, cook. but what well, I'm, I'm saying is no. there's a level that if you don't cook, if you just shove a pork chop under a grill or you cook toast and eggs and beans, that's not cooking. That's Why just not? No, that's not cooking. <laughs> that's, not that's, what just, I could. that's just that's just warming no, no, something up or I'm doing something. What I'm saying is, it's not difficult. If you can follow and a menu, that's what can, cooking is. No, not if you can follow a menu. If you can yeah, follow a recipe, if something says a pork chop, cook under the grill for twem- like twelve minutes, um, boil some potatoes. You quickly look on the internet if you have the internet, which I'm sure you do. You but when I think I understand when people say I can't or create these elaborate or like just improvise when you look at it. But when people say I can't cook, I fail to see how someone be like, oh, I can't, I can, I can't. Yeah, it's I can, a like, silly statement. It's, it's a platitude <laughs> really. It doesn't actually mean anything. I like, can't, if you can I can't pu- make cups of tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cups of tea is a whole Yeah, you should thing. talk to the people I work with. They go, anyone want tea? They go, no. Yeah, I, I, like, my, I like my tea. <laughs> there was a guy I knew once. This is slightly off the subject, but he said, Always do things badly for the first time if you don't want to do them. And yeah. he, was like, he was working in a he was working in a nightclub, and there was this big, huge guy there that like everyone in the UK knew. And he used to say, "Which one of you want to give me a massage on my back?" And they were all men at the time. Yeah. I used to terrorise. I said, "You were men when he said." He said, "Yeah." And he said, "I was so scared." I said, "I just went and did it." And he said, "Oh, you like you do it really well." And he said that was it for two years. I was the only one. He said, <laughs> he said "Why didn't I just do it badly really the first time?" <laughs> and I've always remembered that with tea and things. Yeah, <laughs> Anyone yeah. said you want it? I make horrific yeah. tea, so Ugh. you never ask again. Well, I'm also wondering what kind of nightclub was this? It <laughs> was it's, uh, um, massage with the bounce. I don't want to give any names away, but it was a, you know the name. You'll know the name of it if I said it. But anyway, I shouldn't okay. have gone down that avenue. <laughs> <laughs> Different version of my life. Um, so yeah, so you was in our price. Yeah. Then what happened? Right. So then I got made redundant um, in that okay. classic way that these sort of things happen. I spent about six months um, with the world slowing down, thinking I was like really busy looking for work. And in fact, you know, I'd sort of get up and look through the Guardian, walk to the shop and buy something, come home. And then that a was a day well spent. Yeah, a day well spent. <laughs> I, was thinking, I, was, I guess I think I thought I'd retired, um, but obviously I hadn't. Um, and uh, I was in uh, my local Indian restaurant getting a takeaway, and um, there was an advert in for a uh, retail manager in uh, Marikiri Cancer and it was just at the time when charities were beginning to change because they in the, in the sort of in the past if you expressed an interest in something you might be put in charge of it so oh, i think we should do some marketing so we were in charge you didn't know yeah. anything about it at all so um and charities were overly reliant on legacy income from people dying and leaving the money and, and because it was the recession yeah, really. the value the people not less people were dying but the value of their states were less so legacy income was a kind of single root feeding the tree and it was getting vulnerable. So charities were diversifying into other areas and sensibly putting people with those skill sets into the organisations to run them. So I was um, responsible for the shops from Alfreton down to Exeter for about a year. And then you were down Exeter for a year? No, no down from, from Alfreton oh up okay, north there. Right, so it yeah. was a, a chunk of shops across the south okay. of the country. And then... Um, I was in the uh, toilets at the Children's Society and I was chatting to this guy who was telling me... Careful, <laughs> 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 yeah, there more you go with this. Sentence. What, what time does this go out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if at all, if at all. And I, I was, I was uh, chatting to this bloke at this uh, meeting I'd gone to who, who was saying he worked at Shelter and um, he was retiring and, um, you know, would I be interested in, in, in applying for the job? And I was like, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would have been running, you know, what was Shelter training, so... Um, 
So I uh, applied and um, I got interviewed by uh, Sheila McKetney, who, uh, amongst others, who was um, running shelter in those days, who was out there, extremely political. I was wearing a blue shirt with like a red tie and she came over to the interview. She says, congratulations on stealing blue back from the Tories. <laughs> I wanted to say, mm-hmm. actually, it's the only shirt I've got. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I'm really on message. I was like, okay. It's so this was what, the fighting 80s. the war. This is the 80s. <laughs> yeah. So politics like was everything. Yeah, so so, um, so I, got, I got the job there. Um, and uh, it was one of those funny times where they had to do lots of psychological and intelligent tests oh, on you, yeah. which they hadn't told me the end of this interview, so I don't, so I was thinking, oh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. So then I had this hour and a half of like, you know, a train leaves, a steam train leaves Edinburgh, you know, 40 miles an hour with an easterly wind, what time does the smoke oh get to Wales God. or something? So I'm randomly guessing all this kind of crap as the answers. Well, they give you like Rorschach tests. Yeah, yeah. Said, what do you yeah, see? Yeah, what do you see? Stuff. And I got the job <laughs> and I was thinking, well, that's pretty good. So a couple of weeks into it, I was like, I was, I was asking the director of resources, you know, how, how, did I, how did I do at the beginning? And he said, frankly, he goes, you, you were more than the kind of person that we want for the role, but you weren't as intelligent as we'd hoped for. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Good to know. Which is probably true, actually. Yeah. Um, mm. But anyway, despite that, um, I developed um, Shelter's commercial trading businesses. So I took the chain of charity stores from over 65 to over 100. Um, shelter Trading, which is an internet Christmas card mail order business, and Shelter Training, which sells training commercially to people in the housing space and makes money on that. So I was running all the businesses that were contributing profits to Shelter's charitable work, and I did that for 13 years. Yeah, 13 years, man. That's a long time. That's good training for big issues. Yeah, bearing in mind I'm only 35. Well, of course. <laughs> I mean, if you don't even look that. <laughs> um, so you've got the, the, the walk. Tell us about the walk that's coming All right, up. So um, the night walk's coming up on Friday the 11th of March. It is totally my favourite event that we do. Um, How many have you done before? Uh, I've done, this is be our sixth, I think. Oh, okay. So it, it, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's... Um, Got a serious message behind it. As I was saying earlier, it's in recognition of the fact that people who are new to the streets don't sleep on them at night. They walk at night and sleep in the day. So it's got a very hardcore message there, but it's a fundraiser to support our services, to support the brokerage work that we do that helps big issue vendors move their lives forward. Um, it features loads of our vendors at different rest stops. So it's very participative. All of our events are, are based on that. It's not about people getting together to help them over there. <laughs> them over there uh, them here. Um, and we start and end at St John's Church in Waterloo, uh, just by the IMAX. Um, and we've got a fantastic um, sort of starting moment. So we've got um, James and Street Cat Bob are le- leading the charge. Oh, what was that? Yay. What is it? What was James and Street Cat Bob? Yeah. Where are you being? James Bowen. Is it? James Bowen's a, <laughs> a form- band. former big issue vendor oh. who um, adopted or was adopted by a stray cat called Bob who used to. Uh, be on his pitch with him and also when he was busking and he would he just like sit on his shoulders he was so this yeah. real life we're talking real about life. real life okay. and he was um, approached by uh, a ghostwriter who basically said we could um, write you a story and um, do you know I'll just jump in there just yeah. for th- when I was about how old am I now Oh, I can't add up. But anyway, a while years ago, a woman said to me she wanted to write a story about my life and I was like oh yeah I'll do it for the cash and then she wanted to change everything. Yeah. Like she said, well, can you say that? And can you say that happened instead of that? And I was like, well, that didn't happen. But well, you just say that that happened and that's why you left home. And then I was thinking, how many books have been written where you've changed everything? Mm. Like they're not, as, you know, these help me poor books, you know, poor yeah. me books. I was just wondering how many of them are fake. Like they've just ramped everything up the inside it. 
But anyways, yeah, so that annoyed me. But anyway, I didn't, and I didn't do it. Yeah. Sorry, go back All to right. your story. Uh, yeah, so, um, so uh, Street Cat Named Bob uh, was the first book that came out. Um, and film is well huge now, isn't success. it? Um, uh, James now outsells people like John Grisham. I think the book's been published in something like 135 different countries Did around the world. Did he write it? Yeah, he wrote it with a ghostwriter. With ah. a ghostwriter. So, um, and there have been a, se a sequence of books since then, and uh, Roger Spottiswood has just uh, finished... Uh, the film of his life. Um, he and Scott they're using the real cat, aren't they? Because none of the other cats were no, as well good. They, they've got some uh, cats that were apparently in training in Canada for some months beforehand, but Bob's in it as well. Um, and I think it's due out in May, and it'll probably fit into that sort of space of being kind of a great British film, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's a story of redemption. It's not made can up, I keep James. This? Yeah, of course so you can. I'll well, I was going to ask, actually. I mean, he's obviously one of them, but one of my other questions was going to be, have you had any major success stories like of all these vendors um do people stay doing mm -hmm. the big issue for however many years or is the point that they do it maybe for a year and then they get back into society in a normal job however mm -hmm. you want to say like where where does where's the spectrum lie have you had people who have literally like taken off or do most people stay selling the big issue uh, it really varies i mean james story is um unusual to the extent of his fame and the kind of reach yeah, in of the course. space he's remains really connected to the organisation, to big issue vendors, and uses his fame and publicity yeah. and the connection that he has with his readership to talk about uh, the work that other vendors are doing in our work. So he's there to sort of support us. But I suppose people often ask that question, like, oh, you must be, everyone must be really entrepreneurial. Can you tell me a story about a couple of vendors that got together and created, I don't know, a wind farm <laughs> in Scotland and, you know, all these kind of things. And there are some amazing stories out there. But I suppose for me, the beauty of the big issue is is success is not defined by us it's defined by you and we work with you to get the things that you want so uh, you cannot compare one person's success to another frankly if you manage to keep coming through that door in those first two weeks when you're trying to sell your magazine and yeah, you that's get your through, biggest leap that is yeah. a huge huge achievement but we will find our service guys, our service teams, the people that this night walk uh, fundraises for, will be looking for things that will connect with you that are personal to you in order to motivate you to go to work. You know, what are you going to work for? What, what, what are the things that you're doing? And so, for example, we have to find um, things that will motivate you, aspirational things. So for, uh, a good example, one of our vendors in Birmingham, Mick, um, grew up in a sort of fairly disadvantaged, chaotic home. His mum had to choose which one of their children no. in a Sophie-style choice yeah. that she would keep when the rest went into care. Mick was <laughs> one of those kids who went into care. He didn't do very well in that space. He didn't do very well at school. When he left, he became a builder. Um, he started to drink a bit. He broke his back at work. He ended up losing his job. He hit the streets of Birmingham, homeless. We worked with him. He became a vendor. We worked with him to sort out the absolute mess and chaos of the environment that he was living in, reconnected him with his uh, siblings, his brother and sister who he hadn't seen for a long time. Um, we got him um, a passport and a bank account and helped him reconnect with his mum. He saved the money from his sales and with our support, he and his brothers and siblings went to see his mum in Tenerife last summer for the first time since they went into care. An amazing good news story. It hits the daily mirror in a quiet news moment and everyone's going, wow. Actually, what for us that was, was a piece of financial inclusion work. Yeah, we were, you know, helping Mick plan his sales, 
have something to save for, somewhere to put that money and sort himself out. Mixed thinking, I'm going to see my mum. And yeah. the whole point here is that that's the most important motivational thing. And if you, you can create traction in this space by finding things for people that they want to find for themselves, because yeah. you're more likely to hold on to it. So for Mick, seeing his mum was a great thing, we got him financially included. For somebody else, it will be a whole bo bunch of other stuff, but we will find that driver because like making a living is just the beginning you know what you're going to work well, that's for, what i mean and that's I mean what we find so the success is universal yeah yes however i understand that but what i mean you, you say you've got two thousand vendors across the the country mm -hmm. surely the point of the big issue isn't to keep them doing the big issue, big issue for years and years and years that's surely a stepping stone. Yeah, but you can't push them what in whatever no, direction. No, 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 They're no, going to find their own way. What, like, you know, if this has been going for 20 years, yeah. looking back at the statistics, what proportion of those people then, d you know, move within, you know, society and have a house okay, and have a job? There's a couple of things to sort of say, say in that space. Um, fir first and foremost, um, our objective is to make your vending career as appropriate and successful as you for you as you want it to be. So we don't have a prescriptive program of work that you have to go through and an exit point that's, you know, no, that no, we no. think you should leave at. So as long as you want to buy and sell that magazine, we will work with you to help hopefully make that process as inclusive and successful for you as you would like it to be. Now that might mean that you're with us for three weeks. It might mean that you're with us for three years. It, it can really depend. The complexity of issues that people have sometimes can really hold them back. Um, and you know, the longer you're out there, the less likely you are to return to being the person you were. You know, you take your clothes off and go for a swim in the sea. The tide catches you, and you get down the beach, and mm. you get back, and you're on the beach, but your clothes aren't there. And in the same way, that process of being excluded will change you. And so, the chances of you returning to that 2.5 children and that happy family might not exist in the way that it was, because you've been on quite a journey by the time mm. that you come with us. So that journey is something that we will try and shape and influence the tide so that you arrive at a point that is has traction right, for okay. you and is meaningful to you not what is meaningful to me what do i know what you want i don't know what you want no, you no, know no, what you want and i suppose what i'm saying is not avoiding the question i'm saying the answer in terms of success is every time we can find those sticky points those things that people do it for themselves because it's all about empowerment it's all about what yeah, the big else thing is you're, you're sort of implicitly well not even implicitly explicitly you're teaching people the basic skills that they needed to then go and find their own thing. It's not yeah, that thing but, of giving people. But, but what we learned in that process was that if you just talk to people about the skills that they need or they don't have, there's normally a jolly good reason why you haven't got them. Yeah. Too boring or too complicated or a you know, combination of those things. And we had some money from financial in, um, institution when I started. That's why I kind of learned it all. We did this big program of debt counselling because everybody understands that people are homeless going to need debt counselling. So we had these great volunteers, fantastic marketing materials. Free debt counselling today, you know, throw open the doors and no one turned up. And the reason why no one turned up was who wants to think about debt? I bet there are people in this room who don't want to think about debt. I don't like thinking about debt. But if you say who wants to go on holiday, well, I do. And you need to save for that. And it's about how you talk about things. You get it with kids who struggle with numbers. You know, if you do numeracy, work <coughs> numeracy workshops, no one turns up. If you run a session <laughs> on mobile phone tariffs, the room is rammed. And the point is, if it's something that you want, Mm. You acquire the skills to get there. But if you just go drum on about the things you haven't got, yeah. no one engages because you've been not engaging for a long time. So the way that we create a journey in this space is to find those things that motivate you. And they're specific to all of us um, and not necessarily universal. So we try and work through those things to get you the things that will get you there. And 
through doing it in an inclusive way, it gets you back into society. You know, we don't want you to be having some secondary health care. We want to make sure you can get to a GP, but most homeless people use A&E as their primary form of health care yeah. seven times more frequently than the rest of us. We get people into doctors. We get people bank accounts. We get people their identity back. And we give people the choice about how they choose to participate in society, but in as, as inclusive a way as possible. And that is about democratic participation. And therefore, you do what you want. You make your choices yeah. and you aim for those things. And we try and make you f help you find those. And in the process of locking onto those, you will acquire the skills that you have lost or whatever to get to that journey that takes you to a point. And you're going to hold on to that much more importantly than if you went through our sausage factory-like program and stuff. Mm. And now it's your debt yeah. counselling sessions how it, today. How has it made you, f like, look at your own life? Has, <coughs> it, has it made you... Do you kind of separate it, or do you find yourself like walking the streets and analysing people, looking at people, giving money here and there, or do you kind of separate? Has it made you think about life differently? Well, you were sheltered for a long time anyway, weren't you? Yeah, um, well, even from back then, like that's because even from the conversation we've had now, I ch it changed me it straight changed, away exactly. from the way I look. I mean, even the company, like the helping yeah. them and doing that, I didn't realise that was yeah. all there. Yeah. Um, it just flows through me. <laughs> I don't Can't really you see the halo above his head? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't mean it that way. I oh, just like cigarette smoke. It's just, it's, just <laughs> the, it's just the kind of, just the way of like... Well, that's what I mean. Do you, do you walk person? around... Well, no, but that's funny because like you can be a decent person and not realise what's going on. Do you now walk around and analyse people? Do you, do you? Is it just common... It's just in you now to be like, homeless, I could help him. Yeah, that, that's an like anything. I mean, you, Zach, the other day, we haven't got a mic, but you was talking about like when you know when you see something overly edited. Oh, no, no, yeah, I know. That's anybody, whenever asking. you do any job, you see everything yeah. behind it. So like, it's like me when I said when I walked past the, sh um, the, 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 uh, the homeless place, you, you suddenly notice all these bloody things all over the place. But you must, especially when you see your, especially when you see vendors. Yeah, I'd, I, I suppose all I'd say is um, I don't take things at face value. Yeah. So he's being that, very that modest. Uh, no, but that's that's the thing, isn't it? You just know that there's not what you see is not necessarily what you're really seeing. You're seeing what you think you see, and 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 that job teaches you that, and and that's a good thing. Stephen, you're a gentleman. Thank you. You've got a very uh, you've got a <laughs> fan here, so um, I really want to I appreciate it very much you coming in uh, to do this. It's really a do appreciate it. And Come to the night walk. Yeah, we're, I'm mm. trying to sort some people out now for awesome. that. Awesome. Um, it's, I, I tend to think it's really important that some things just have to be retold again. Mm -hmm. You know, every now and again, we, like, is, as I said before, the ambiguity is a big problem when mm -hmm. you don't understand something. You, just, you haven't got the time, but sometimes you just have to tell people what it is and yep. what's exactly happening and then rely on the people's good nature when yeah. they know the actual facts. People do see things. So the, the, the big issue vendors are actually people that are seeking help and are helping themselves. Businessmen. And yeah, and your money goes directly to them, um, precipitating the rest of their career, really. Yeah. So it's very important to give them money and when you see And you get a good them. product in return, so it's not just a... Yeah, yeah, it's not like a shoddy I've product. I've got my yeah. reading material for the tube yeah, bag. Superb. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, so thank you very much, Stephen. Pleasure. I Thanks really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Via Lucci Podcast, recorded in London with your hosts, Hannah Jackson and Theo X, co-hosted and produced by Zach Gerard. To get in touch with the show, please go to vialucci.com and follow the links. My name's Tom Wheelahan. Until next time, from all of us here at Via Lucci, be good to each other, be good to yourself, and have a great day. <laughs>